Thanksgiving uh, break, I heard a story about a young uh, man who was failing high school and he wanted to drop out. Uh, but he had made a promise to his mother uh, that he would take the SAT at the end of his junior year. Now, he obviously didn't expect to do anything good on the test because he had bombed, you know, basically three years of high school, didn't go to a lot of class, he just, he, he just <laughs> wasn't in a good place. But he promised to take this test. So he takes the test and he gets a 1480 out of 1600. Uh, that's an incredibly good score. And when the score came to the house, his mom accused him of cheating. And he told her, he goes, honestly, mom, I went in wanting to, tr to cheat. I tried to cheat, but they set it up. You just can't cheat. Uh, I don't know. I got a 1480. So he realizes that he's actually really smart. And so he enters into his senior year and he decides to go to class, uh, do his homework. He stops hanging out with some of the old friends who were failing out of high school and bad influence on him. He makes up some classes. He ends up graduating high school, goes to community college, graduates, he ends up starting his own magazine that takes off, and now he has, uh, he's an adult, he's built uh, a really good life for him and his family. And, you know, he and his family concluded that he was always a smart kid. He just needed a standardized test to unlock his smartness. But then, 12 years after taking the SAT test, he gets a letter in the mail from the SAT board. And they tell him that the year that he took the test, they sent 13 kids the wrong score, that actually his score was a 740 out of 1600, which is a failing score, which is what everybody would have expected. And when he got the letter, he realized that his entire life changed, uh, not when he got a 1480, but when he started acting and believing that he was a 1480. Belief and identity are powerful transforming agents. Belief and identity can actually change the hard wirings of your brain. It can bring real motivation to your heart and actually affect how you live your life. Uh, belief and identity, they give you power to overcome the suffering of sin. The scripture that is going to anchor our time today comes out of Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to start in verse 5, and so if you're able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Chapter 8, verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. 
Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father, for His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Your Word. Thank You that You've given us Your Word that we would be clear, that we would know You, we would know us, we would know how to have a relationship with You. Lord Jesus, would you come now and just anoint your word to speak directly to each one of us. That's why we're here, Jesus. We're here because our life does not make sense unless you lead it. So come and lead us, Jesus. You know where each one of us is at. Come and remove apathy. Come and remove distraction. Help us to lock in, to open up our hearts that you would speak through your word so that we would have the life that only you offer. We love you, Jesus. This is your time. We pray this in your name. All God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. Well, for those of you who are new uh, to our church today or visiting, we want to welcome you. And we just want to say uh, that how we do church is we believe that the Scripture is the living Word of God. And I'm going to give some teaching, and then we are going to respond together. We don't want to just take the Word as some sort of informational lecture. And that we're going to create space afterwards for people to respond to the Word, to God, to pray, to worship, to receive prayer. And so as you are receiving the Word, receive it as God, how do I respond? How do I uh, pray and interact with you through the teaching of this Word? Two weeks ago, we started a series on suffering. Not the <laughs> most, you know, it's a, t- it's a, tough, a tough topic, obviously, right? Uh, but specifically what Romans chapter 8 says about suffering. So we looked at the text that immediately precedes what we just read, the end of 7, but so that we get into Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and we saw in that, that section how the root of all suffering is sin, a rebellion against God, a separation from God, a spiritual cancer that is utterly complex and diverse and deadly in its effect on our lives. There are many kinds of suffering in this world. And Pastor Dave last week took us a little bit farther in Romans 8 to just the groanings of all creation, the suffering of uh, disappointment, the suffering of loss, the suffering of poverty, the suffering of oppression, social mockery, fractured relationships. But then there is just bringing it back to the suffering of being born into sin, being hardwired as a person who doesn't trust God, who keeps making assumptions and choices about, uh, that, that, that they can run their lives better than God can. And that personal sin, sort of that self-focused, broken thinking, the impulsive reactions, the pride and comparison, that arrogance, that defensiveness, that addiction to the desires of the flesh. Have I got everybody in the room? I'm raising my hand, yeah. All of that is something that is hardwired in us. And the first step to overcoming that sin is to own up to its nastiness, to stop covering up and being casual about it, 
to start agreeing with the good doctor that we actually do have spiritual cancer and stop deceiving ourselves that all we have is really a cold. It's a nasty disease that we have. Listen to verse 5 through 8 that we just read this morning again and ask yourself, is this how you describe the sin that is in you? Are you seeing clearly? Are you kind of watering it down to make yourself feel better? Verse 5 says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature. There it is again. It is part of our nature. As we talked about, every one of us is born with part of our natural selves in the image of God. There's a unique beauty and strength in godliness that we are born with, but then all of us are born with a part of our natural selves in brokenness, in rebellion, and deception. Verse 6 says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. That's a harsh word. Colds don't kill you, but cancer does. Do you see a deadly disease in your heart, mind, and soul that leads to death? Because if you don't see it, if you don't own up to it, you're never going to be able to deal with it to be able to heal it. Verse 7, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. Dang, that's intense language. That's war-like language. The scripture is saying that in each one of us, there is a part of us that is hostile to God. We can blame a lot of other people. We can blame a lot of events or reasons for it being there, and there's a lot of merit in all of that, but it's still there. <laughs> and we are responsible for it when we come face-to-face -face with God. It's not just a kind of rebellious child who's in a stage. It's a sickness in us that will always remain hostile and violent in hatred of God and His ways until we really own up to it. Years ago, years ago, when my kids were very tiny, just starting to have kids. I think it was just, I think, I think Sammy was still with the Lord. It was just two little baby boys. Uh, I was on the golf course. I was not a very good golfer in those days at all. I was the guy who would aim one way and it would go another way. And I was constantly hitting the ball into the trees. And I figured out real quick that the best way for me to get out of the trees back into the good grass was to aim my shot right at the tree because I could never hit what I, what I was aiming because it would go somewhere else. I was the guy that was always looking for extra balls that were hidden in the bushes because I was losing so many balls I needed to replenish to make it through a round. Okay, I was that kind of golfer. I was dangerous. You wanted to stay behind me, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but when I would go out, I, I just enjoyed being out in nature. That's why I went out there, right, and just kind of having some calm and peace, right? But I, you go, when you go out, you always get put with random people uh, if you're by yourself. And so I would always be the worst player uh, and so I always just had to swallow my pride, right? I had to just kind of make a decision. Hey, I'm out here because I'm just getting some rest. Who cares that these guys don't know me and they're kicking my butt? All right, great. Well, one day I am meeting the two guys on the first tee box that I'm going to play with. And before we were chatting it up, and I, so I asked one guy, so how, how long have you been playing golf? And he says, just four months. And in my mind, I'm like, yes, like maybe today I will not be the worst guy. I mean, he's only been playing for four months, right? He goes to hit his first ball and just crushes it 250 yards straight. And then every shot after that is just these good shots, and he's killing all of us. And so, you know, we were making some small talk, and I learned about his family. He had three kids. Then by the fourth hole, finally, I said, hey, man, I thought you told me you only played for four months. He laughed, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I get that all the time. Uh, he goes, but you don't understand. This is who I am. I play every day after work. 
I play Saturday and Sunday. I get lessons certain days of the week. I have, I'm just all in. It's just who I am. And I remember, I just remember looking at him and going, and my reaction was, dang. I was like, but wait, you told me you have a wife and three kids. Like, how does your wife feel about that? And when I asked that question, something turned in his face, and he gets angry. And he just goes, oh, that bleep? I told that bleep she has a choice, either strip clubs or golf, because I ain't coming home and hanging out with those three bleeps and her. And then he just walked away. And I was so shocked, because we were having a friendly conversation, and something went deep right there. But then I was so angry. I just, I just couldn't talk to him for a while. I was just judging the dude. I was just like, what the heck? And so I started working this out with God as I'm going through the round, because I'm just angry. And I, and I realized, you know, by the end of the round, that I was face-to-face with the cancer of sin that is hostile to God. I was face-to-face with an enemy of God. And I knew by the end that I could not ultimately judge him. God could. You know, God's going to deal with that. But, and, and I knew that God would always offer him grace if he would own up to it and, and, and change it. But if he didn't own up to it, he was going to reap the consequences of that. He was going to be the greatest golfer in the world at, by 60, but he was going to be totally alone. Right, So I, I was able to leave my judgment to God, and I let God use that experience to humble me to the hostility of sin that is in me, that if left unchecked, could grow into something that I just saw. I asked Jesus for the strength of spirit to not let conflicts in my marriage grow into a division and hatred in my marriage. And I asked God as I walked off the course with two baby boys, I was like, do not let my hobbies ever dominate me where I am not with my children. Uh, I actually end up stopping playing golf after a little while as I realized, I'm, I'm going to be with my kids, uh, right? Uh, when, see, when we see the hostility of sin in other people, we are shaken to the bones. As someone once said, I think Mark was telling me, somebody else told him, it's like, you know that you're born in sin when you think about it. When we look at movies, we are like drawn and intrigued by the most violent, evil people characters on the movies. I mean, we're just like, whoa, the Joker. Like, oh, man. But then, when in real life, we face somebody who is just crazy evil, it shakes us to the bones, right? There is an attraction until it gets real close and makes it real. And then we're just, right? The word, but what we have to realize when we come across a person who has let their sin nature utterly control them, uh, where their sin cancer has just taken over their heart, we are to humble ourselves before Jesus, recognizing the seed of that same hostile cancer in our own hearts. The worst people in the world were once beautiful little babies, like that little baby who's giving me an amen right now during the service, right? The worst person in your life was once a beautiful little baby. And you can't uh, blame you know, family of origin or society about their fall into depravity as a way to kind of judge them and say, well, yeah, I, you know, they're, they're that way because of all these things. Because, see, for every overtly evil person you show me, I can show you someone who had the same story as them, but who is living free and not dominated by that sin cancer, but actually dominated by the Spirit of Jesus. Clearly, family of origin and everything affects how we grow up. But we can't use that in anything to, to, to separate ourselves from the people we most fear and hate and say, yeah, they're animals. I'm not like that. Thank you, God. 
We have to resist that temptation to self-righteously separate ourselves from those. It doesn't mean that we don't call people out when they need to be checked, especially when their, their junk is affecting the people around them. But see, in the particular example that I shared, every time I refuse to serve my wife, every time I refuse to reconcile with her when we get into a conflict and I refuse to apologize or to offer forgiveness, right? Every time I choose my own selfish interests over my children, I am taking one more step towards being the same guy who golfed for four months. And this applies to any area of life. We are always two steps away from an addiction of all kinds to destroying our relationships, of bringing more pain and suffering to us and to the ones that we love. Our refusal to deal with selfishness, our refusal to deal with pride and defensiveness, our refusal to take our spiritual medicine it puts us on a path that gets us closer to what we hate and fear. See, sin is just nasty like that. It's deadly. It creates this pride so that we don't deal with it. Oh, at least I'm not like them people, right? And so the first step is just stopping the excuses and the casualness to then be able to stop the pain of the suffering, right? Verse 13 in our text says, if you live by sin's dictates, you will die, right? And so that was... We want to be the people who are so free. Remember, we talked about two weeks ago, we're all in recovery of some sort of unique expression of sin in our lives. Have I convinced us to choose into humility and hunger right now? Anybody else here want to just have a little bit of humility and hunger? Because I'm about to make a pivot into the good news. Okay, I'm about to lay down for us the cure, the power to overcome the pull of sin in our lives. Amen? All right, here we go. Suffering series. It ain't an easy series, Okay. But here's the good news. Uh, as we saw two weeks ago, the first step is that Jesus' death on the cross takes away the punishment and the judgment and the shame for our sin. And that's for everyone. If four-month golfer guy eventually wants to come and repent, he receives full forgiveness. Uh, we'll always receive it. Every day we own up to it. Without fear, we can come before the Lord and we will not be smacked in the mouth by him. We are not judged by the Lord when we own up to our sin and ask for his help. But that death on the cross did much more than just absolve us of the punishment that we deserve for the millions of sins that we will commit in our lifetime. And this is where a lot of people who claim to follow Jesus fall a little bit short. Verse 9 is speaking to those who are following Jesus says, But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And then he says... And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. Verse 10, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. Just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. The work of Jesus did not end at His death on the cross. His death took our death. Meaning, he took the punishment we deserve. That's why there's no punishment. Because every time God's angry at our sin, he, he has taken it out on his son. That's just, it's just an incredible thing, right? That he put it on Jesus. But the, here's the deal. Jesus rose from the dead. Can I get an amen for that one, right? So that means he rose victorious over death, right? So if death is sort of the nuclear weapon of sin, or if death is the worst culmination of the power of sin. It's the, death is the greatest act of hostility to a God who is all about life. 
So when Jesus rose from dead, he defeated the power of death, and so by logic, follow me, he defeated every other weapon or manifestation of sin. If he defeated death, he defeated addiction. If he defeated death, then pride is real easy. If he defeated death, then brokenness in relationships, he can defeat that. Anxiety all the way down the list. He's king now. So he calls the shots in our neighborhood of, the, of our soul and our mind, right? And his forgiveness is what then allows him to put his powerful, death-defying spirit into our souls before we're perfected. We often think that I've got to get my stuff together before I can get all the blessings from God. No, he has made a way for, before you get your stuff together, to forgive you, to put him in you so that you can actually get it all together. Many think, people think that going to church or going to life group, reading that Bible, it's just an act of gratefulness and loyalty to the club. Sort of like, hey, we said the prayer, we gave our lives to Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins, and so now we just got to be grateful and we got to be loyal. That is not the heart of why we show up to church and life group and read our Bibles. Here's the problem. If you're thinking, I'm doing this to be grateful and loyal, that eventually turns into pharisaical pride and self-righteousness. Well, I'm loyal to God, what about you? Right? That's, that's not the heart of it. Gratefulness and loyalty is good. That is in the scripture. But the heart of why we are showing up every week to prayer and worship and life group and reading our Bibles is because we are sick and messed up and we're coming to get the medicine. We are a people who are perpetually in humility and recovery going, this is where my life is. This is where I can find the death-defying, overcoming spirit of Jesus. We show up because we have found the cure. We, don't, we want to minimize the suffering in our life. And so we come. That is why we pray. We want to defeat the hostility of God. We want to win. In fact, our text takes us even deeper. Verse 9 says, But you, followers of Jesus, are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And then he says, this is a tough verse. And remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. So he's saying, if you don't have the Spirit of God, like you can't see overcoming sin in your life, you're not with Jesus yet. And he says, and if you've got the Spirit of Jesus in you, your sinful nature is not controlling you. Now this is a tough thing, right? He's saying, if the Spirit of God is living in you, you're not controlled by the hostile nature of sin. If you're controlled by sin, then your words of allegiance to Jesus are empty, and you're in a spiritual dangerous place. The assurance that you are forgiven of your sin, the assurance of being with Jesus in the New Testament is that his spirit is overcoming your sin. Cheap grace is a term that describes a lie that has gotten to some people's brains that they can just accept Jesus as their Savior, and then they are forgiven of all their sins in the past, in the present, and their future sins, and so they just feel free to keep indulging in whatever lifestyle they want to live. Because God understands, He loves me, I'm forgiven. That is not a biblical description of a person uh, who has given their life to Jesus. As we read in this text, and there are many others, when a person actually owns up to how nasty their stuff is, they do not feel entitled to forgiveness. When they realize that they have this hostility towards a good God, there is an utter desperation and an understanding that they deserve death, 
And so when they receive the forgiveness of Jesus, that transaction utterly changes the mindset and the soul and the perspective on who God is and what life is about. It's utterly incomprehensible that God would keep forgiving a wretch like me. And so the power of the transaction of being forgiven fuels the progress of transformation to becoming more like Jesus. So you know that you've received forgiveness if you start wanting to grow to become like Jesus. If you just kind of like, I sinned, I need your forgiveness, God, and then you go back into sin like it's nobody's business, then you actually are not owning up to the depths of your sin. You're just like, just in case I'm going to get smoked, or just in case, you know, I'm not going to get, let me just, I'm sorry, but peace out, I got my grace, I'm, that's cheap grace. The goodness and the beauty of God becomes more desirable than the temptation to sin when the Spirit of Jesus is living in you. And there's this growth in the spirit of Jesus, and there's a hunger for more. Then there's this lifelong partnership with Jesus to be led by his spirit that brings us out of the worst kind of suffering that humans endure. Remember, we talked about it. The worst suffering we endure that we feel day to day to day is our, our sin. Now, this can bring a lot of anxiety, this kind of scripture, to many of us who are stuck in addiction or deep patterns of sin that have been with us since birth. We try to overcome with the help of Jesus, we succeed a little bit, and then we fall back into it. So does that mean that we don't have the assurance of the love and the salvation of Jesus? No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the scripture is saying. So here's, here's how it works. There are sinful patterns and bad thinking and self-focus and lifestyle issues that can very quickly be worked out by the love of Jesus. And there's a spirit of God, and we very quickly kind of change some things that are wrong or broken in our life. Everybody has those parts where it's like, right away when they give their life to Jesus, it's like, I'm done with that. Can you all feel that? Everybody's got some of that? Yeah, yeah. We all have some of that, where it's just like, yeah, this is, well, this is garbage, right? I'm, I'm, I'm right here. But then there are things in all of us uh, that has been, is in there deep. Some of us born into it. It's wired into us. It's been in our families, right? We talked about all the different ways that sin affects us. And, uh, and there's an anxiety, like, I, can't, I want to get out of it, but I keep falling back into this pattern of living. Um, these things, and I would say there are things in us that can never be per fully removed from us until we cross to the other side to be with Jesus in heaven. Okay, so pastor, if there's things of sin in us all the way, but you're saying we're supposed to be overcoming our sin by Jesus, how does that work? Um, let, me, let me try to communicate what I believe it means to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus in the areas that just seem like they're going to be there forever. First, what it means to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus is to live in perpetual humility and a hunger for transformation. We are all in recovery. To be controlled by sin is to deny, to deceive ourselves that it's either not a thing or it is something that is good and just who I am. To be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus is to identify with Him and His righteousness, not to identify with any aspect of our brokenness. See, we may not be able to overcome all the time, but we will not let our falling into sin become an identity that we justify or celebrate. 
it's either strip clubs or golf. That is just who I am. He said, oh, I, I is who I am. No, that's, that's not being overcome by the Spirit of Jesus. Second, to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus is to regularly confess sin and receive forgiveness. My identity is that I'm a child of grace. I'm never going to be a child of merit. I am never going to be a child who lives in self-confidence as like separate from anything else. I am always a child who lives in the confidence of being adopted by a good God who's patient and loving and walking with me in spite of my sin. Thus, I will always confess and receive grace to constantly get my medicine so that I'm not living and building up in this sin and shame and guilt and all these things. Third, to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus is to love Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus and the heart of Jesus and the self-control of Jesus and the radical, self-denying, sacrificial heart of Jesus more than myself. I will worship Jesus and not myself. He's my hero. I'm not my hero. He's the one that I want to be like. And so he's the perfect one. And so I realized he got me. He bought me. He's my friend. He's my advocate. He's the one that's going to get me all the best things in life. He's going to get me all the way to the other side. And so he's my hero. He's my standard. He's my everything. It's why when we walk in on Sunday mornings, even if we have fallen into sin on Saturday night, we can walk in and say, I am sorry. This is not who I want to be. But Jesus, you didn't fall into sin. You're the one I'm worshiping. I'm not worshiping me. Do you realize that subconsciously, if you come into a place of worship of God and you're kind of like, oh gosh, I'm just, I'm this, I can't really, because I don't, I don't earn it, I am not worthy enough to worship, you're worshiping you. That's ultimately what it is. You're the, the center of the show. And that, this is what we, we worship Jesus. That's how we're controlled by the Spirit of Jesus. And lastly, to be controlled by the Spirit of Jesus means that I won't stop receiving and pursuing His Spirit until I'm finally one with Him. It's going to take a lifetime. But I'm not pursuing out of an anxiety that if I don't get this stuff under control now, I'm going to be smoked by God. There's no anxiety there because of His forgiveness. I'm free from all that. So I just won't stop pursuing it because I love living free. Right? I won't stop going after this what seems like an impossible thing to get out of my, my, my being because every little inch of ground that I can cover with the Spirit of Jesus is one less inch of suffering in my life. That's my mindset, my whole life. It's just one more step towards greater hope and greater fulfillment and the best version of myself that God created me to be, right? One more step of freedom. No matter how deep the sin nature is, no matter how deep that is, no matter how deep lust is, no matter how deep anger is, no matter how deep criticalness is, that materialism, that fear of risk, that apathy toward the things of God, that selfishness, no matter how deep it is, the promise is sure that if we believe that we belong to Jesus, if we believe that we are adopted into God's family, if we believe that we are his beloved children, we keep living life with him as our central identity, we will see real transformation. So that deep, deep issue, usually what happens is by the time we're about 20 years old, it's at a level 10. It is kind of owning us and at about 20. And it's sort of a decision. Are we going to make it our identity because there's no way we can seem to control it or not? Or are we going to give it to Jesus and start the long journey of intimacy with him? Right? 
That was my decision at 20 with the area of lust in my life. It was just at a 10, and, I, and it was so tough, I was tempted to go, I'm just going to be this person. And Jesus is like, no, you're forgiven, but come on, stay with me. And so what happens is, is that if we stay with Jesus, we stay humble, we keep going to his spirit, all of a sudden, by 30, it's going to be a 7. And by 40, it'll be a 6, 5. By 60, it'll be a 4. And by 70, it'll be a 3. And then finally, when we are face-to-face with God, it's 0, baby. Ain't no sin crossing the other side. See, our problem is, is that we stop confessing, we stop praying, we stop seeking, we stop fighting, we just start coasting. We just stop the treatment. We think we get to 30, we're like, well, a 7, man, I'm a lot better. Jesus changed my life, and that's a lot better than a 10. So let me just coast, and all you, all the young people, you're at a 10, let me help you out, because you know what I'm saying, I was there, right? And then all of a sudden, by 40, it's back up to 10, and we're like, what happened? What happened? Why am I falling back into the old 20-year-old self and all these patterns in these ways, right? We got prideful. We, we thought we could just live visiting God every once in a while instead of living with him in the house like family day in, day out. And so now we're suffering again. Our hearts and our souls and minds, they never, ever stay in the same place. If you haven't figured it out by now, there's no such thing as getting to a level of health and staying there like stuck. You're either here or you're here. You're here or you're here. That's why God does not judge when we fall. He's looking at a pattern of our life, and he's saying, man, are you just sold out for me and just trusting me and wanting to get my spirit more in you? And, oh, and we're just going to slowly, it's going to be like this, but it's going to be this slow growth until there's victory on the other side. Mm. I want to bring the worship team up. Like the young man who got the wrong SAT score and started just believing that he was smart. Right here where you're at, I don't know what it is that's in you, that's in your life, that's driving you crazy. I don't know if it's an addictive behavior. I don't know if it's just an unwillingness to uh, share your heart with people. I mean, it gives so many things, right? But I'm asking the Lord to give you sort of that area of your life that it's so hard for you to embrace because you've felt impossible. But I want you to put that issue right now in front of the Lord Jesus. And like like kid, I want you to have the courage to say, I believe that I am a forgiven, I'm a healed, and I'm a victorious son or daughter of Jesus. And I believe, and I'm going to live in that identity, that I didn't earn this, it was given to me, and I'm going to step into it, and then I'm going to just watch Jesus, take that faith and that commitment and begin to slowly change. And every time we fall back into it, I'm going to get up. I'm not going to justify. I'm not going to make an excuse. I'm going to confess it to a great loving God, and then I'm going to keep believing. You don't wait for your feelings to tell you what to do. You don't trust your feelings to dictate your life or your identity because your feelings are all over the place, and feelings, they can be controlled by our sinful nature. And that's what brings the most consistent suffering and pain. You let Jesus dictate your life. Through his word, through the community of other Jesus followers, through prayer, and then you receive his forgiveness in faith. You receive his adoption into the family of faith. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It doesn't matter the crazy thoughts in your mind. It doesn't matter how apathetic you have felt in the last month. It doesn't matter if you've had 10 years of trying and falling, and you're just tired. You are a forgiven 
loved child of God and you believe in faith that Jesus is more desirable and more beautiful and more powerful than any other treasure in this world or this whatever they want to offer you. And you stand in that faith. You stand and say, I'm making a decision that Jesus is everything and I'm going to live that way. And then you just watch. The Lord start to change your affections and your instincts and your reactions. You will see clearly the Spirit of God living in you when you stand in that place. If you have bowed your allegiance to Jesus, the promise is sure. If you have said, Jesus, you're Lord, you're my Savior, you're my identity, no matter what you feel, the Spirit of God is in you. So bring Him the impossible and then watch Him slowly. Slowly. You know, as worship starts up, we, 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 we're forgiven, we're adopted, right? It's victorious in the spirit of Jesus. He's working out our victory over an entire lifetime. And I know we want it quick, but there's just, it's, it's this beautiful intimacy, church. It's like a parent molding a small child over all these years. It's not a performance. It's not a race achievement. It's not anything we're comparing with anybody else. It's a dance. It's a dance between you and your maker. You and your king, you and your lover, right there, just learning the step day after day, and you trip it up, and you mess it up, and Jesus is like, come on back into my arms, and let's just pick it up where we left off, and just feel me. Let me lead the dance instead of you. That's what it is. Rejoice. If you're here today, you're gaining ground. You probably had a lot of choices of what you could do today, this morning, and you chose to come right here. You're gaining an inch. And now, right now, as we worship, depending on your posture, you can gain another inch. You can take another step with Jesus in that dance. That's the beauty of his spirit. Stand with me, church. Romans eight fifteen. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. 